Hello and welcome to this Sustainable Wine podcast. This is a recording of a conference session that took place on the 2nd or 3rd of June 2021 as part of Sustainable Wine's Future of Wine Americas Conference 2021. We'd very much like to thank the sponsors of that conference, BSI, Bodega Argento, Jackson Family Wines, International Wineries for Climate Action and Avenea. Thank you to all of those groups for their important support and I hope you enjoy the session. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the next session. Um, my name is Martin Reyes. And rather than talk about myself, you could read my, my bio as an owner of a multidisciplinary wine consultancy, Reyes Wine Group. I want to urge you to watch the rest of the conference. There's over 70 speakers uh, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It's fascinating stuff. In addition to this session, the organizers also helped me and let me introduce a few sustainable wine pros that I'm excited are participating. Michelle Bouffard, Tasting Climate Change, Melissa Saunders, MW, Packaging Consulting and Importer, Consultant and Importer, Elton Potts, Changing Things at Vine Vault, my good friend and climate warrior, Beth Novak uh, Milliken over at uh, uh, Spotswood. And a special gratitude for Future of Wine Americas for accepting the participation of my co-director at Wine Unify, Alicia Towns Franken, and Yannick uh, Benjamin's there, uh, Wine on Wheels, participating in a stacked session on how wine can tackle equality well. Now, this session is called How Can Glass Reduce Its Footprint Today and Tomorrow? Uh, for a complete story of, how, of the sustainability packaging conversation, assessing cost of uh, carbon footprint, savings, consumer education. Uh, yesterday had a fantastic session that I uh, hopefully is recorded and you can watch it as well. And right now we're talking specifically about glass, the glass footprint itself and what we can do about it today and tomorrow and what is being done. Uh, and I want to introduce my two forward thinking guests, uh, Andy Rose and Bruce Schneider. First, Andy Rose. Andy is a circular economy enthusiast and collaborator collaborative strategist, excuse me. Before the wine business, he worked at TerraCycle and he helped launch the Loop Initiative at the World Economic Forum in 2018. He onboarded Loop's first corporate partners and managed the circular supply chain for over 50, right? It's about 50 uh, uh, branded products. And today, Andy Heads is a head of business development at The Good Goods. This company is modernizing the reusable economy by combining packaging, logistics, and technology to make reusables, and glass in particular, easy and attractive for everybody, consumers, producers, and retailers. Andy, welcome to the session. Yeah, thanks for that introduction, Martin. Excellent. And then we have Bruce Schneider, a co-founder and managing partner at Gotham Project. Um, I had the pleasure of working with his colleague, Charles, on a session a few weeks ago. And so I'm some, somewhat familiar with this and I'm excited to have the other co-founder here, Bruce. Since 2010, Gotham Project has eliminated more than 5 million wine bottles from the waste stream by selling their wines in reusable stainless steel kegs for wines on tap. And Gotham recently extended that effort into uh, zero packaging uh, waste leadership by launching the first multi-state reusable wine bottle program in the US. It's ahead of its time, but the time is now, right? Uh, Bruce is also a third generation wine professional. He's been making a little bit of wine and winemaking and grape growing in New York, Cap Franc especially, and his work has been featured in all kinds of leading media outlets. Bruce, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Martin, great to be here. 
Excellent. So uh, glass bottles. Glass bottles are a conundrum. Um, this is what we're talking about today. And it offers two conflicting results, really. The first is that it produces, we, we know glass very well, it produces beautiful, classy products, uh, sorry, a classy bottle with desirable traits, things that are super protective, it is inert, uh, awesome for long-term storage, with enormous potential for reutilization and recycling, right? In many regards, it's lasted this long for hundreds of years because it is in many regards a perfect ideal for long-term storage, right? Now, at the same time, you see that. Can you see that right there? Right, that's something we don't often see even in the wine business, we do not know or rather we don't think about this too often, right? This slide shows how wine bottles are made using high temperatures up to 2,000, 2,300 degrees Fahrenheit, very carbon intensive process. Substantial amount of energy is used in both the acquisition of the raw materials and the manufacturing process itself. Um, and most of that heat is derived from fossil fuels. And the kicker is that these bottles for all their po positives and pluses, they're very heavy, very inefficient when it comes to uh, transport, relatively speaking, compared to other uh, bottles. And they're, and they're frankly, if you look at a, a case of wine, 36 pounds, right? Maybe 40 pounds if you've if you got a certain box, about 18 pounds of that is glass, you know? So if you wanna think about that, the average footprint is about two pounds of CO2 per bottle. What that means is in the US, if we consume over 4 billion bottles of wine in one year, that's over 8 billion pounds of CO2 in the US alone for every bottle that's consumed and thrown away. So you can imagine when a study was commissioned by the Wine Institute in 2011, carbon footprint assessment of the, within the California wine industry to determine what the greatest impact on GHG emissions was, the answer was crystal clear probably not a surprise to many people. Can you still see this or not? No, you can't, right? Hang on, uh, stop sharing. Let me do this again. Uh, where are we here? This is the slide that I think all of us, when we, when we saw this last time, we decided that we were going to, um, we were going to wanna make sure that we show it again. Can you see the uh, the figure one there with, this is about 10 years old, but this is extremely relevant today. You guys can still see this, right? right? The, the transport packaging and so forth, great. So you can see the single largest impact on the life cycle of a car, of, uh, of a 12, 12 uh, bottle, 12 case of wine is the glass bottle itself, right? And even the vineyard, of course, has a substantial portion but even secondly is transport because of that weight and because of long distances and because our country is pretty darn large, right? So we've got a significant, that means that there's a significant amount of impact that we can have um, uh, when we talk about the subject of the glass. Um, and this offers a huge upside to have that impact. Now, I wanna turn this discussion inside out. I, don't, I do not wanna smash the glass uh, I wanna go deeper, right? And explore our relationship with the glass and how it's evolving its carbon footprint today. So 
there's definitely alternatives. And frankly, I'd say that Bruce, I want to start with you. you uh, this is probably the, the, the only non-glass question in this session, but you started right with kegs and so and alternative packaging, you've been at the forefront. What are some of the pros and cons of moving from glass to alternative packaging from the consumer's perspective? I think you're on mute. There we go, sorry about that. Okay. Um, so starting with kegs, where we started, uh, we founded Gotham Project in 2010. Um, it was initially, it was exclusively uh, wine packaged in stainless steel reusable kegs for uh, wine on tap. So for restaurants, wine bars, um, it solved a few problems. It keeps wine fresher. Uh, but it also reduces the uh, packaging waste. So each keg contains 26 bottles. Um, and for a restaurant where you can have a draft system, it's a great way to eliminate the single-use packaging, keep the wine fresh. Um, over the past decade, as you mentioned, we've eliminated more than 5 million bottles from the waste stream. Uh, on the flip side of that, when you look at alternative packaging, what are, what are some of the downsides? I guess the, the downsides are that there are certain uh, stigmas attached to uh, packaging uh, that the consumer has certain preconceived notions, or a lot of them do, about the quality of the wine coming out of the package based upon what the package is. So in other words, there's an assumption that if you're choosing alternative packaging, or at least there was, Look at 20 years ago, you know, screw top closures were not widely accepted. Um, that was something that consumers felt uh, connoted a lower quality wine. Today, in most cases, we know that's not the case, but that is a problem that alternative packaging uh, faces. Um, but in our experience with kegs, it shouldn't be the case. Uh, it actually ensures that every glass is fresh in the way the winemaker intended it to be. So I think it, it has a lot of benefits, but that that is one of the downsides, the uh, the negative connotations the consumer might hold. So then you jump back in and you you reinvest recently into glass as well, right? So why is glass not disappearing from from your arsenal? And in terms of the consumer's perspective, we'll get into the reusable rescheme. Uh, re yeah, and sure. Yeah, from the consumer's perspective, um, in general, the cons the consumer has no issues with a glass bottle from their perspective. Uh, it's, it's a high quality vessel. It's a beautiful vessel. There's a whole lot of tradition connected to it, especially when you talk about extracting, you know, pulling a cork from the bottle. There's a long history and tradition that people associate with quality. Uh, it's something that they like, um, but it's only when we start to look at it and see that a, a glass bottle was intended to be uh, reused, was built to be reused, but we don't use it that way. So it gets it gets tossed. And we also know that we have problems with recycling here. Less than 30% of all glass gets recycled. So that means more than 3 billion of those 4 billion wine bottles every year are going straight to landfill. So there there are problems with it, serious problems. Thank you, Bruce. And I know, Andy, uh, this... Uh by way of your background, you you came right uh, recently outside of the wine business. And so in the other industries, uh, they're not dealing with most of their containers being glass, right? And there's a different kind of move there. So wine industry, according to you, has a unique position. Tell us about that from your outsider perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So having worked uh, for the past three years in consumer packaged goods where there's Primary packaging is typically in plastic, um, and I think 
so much of the market momentum around the issues with single-use plastic have really fueled the circular economy, have fueled an interest uh, towards reuse. Um, and really the challenge in other industries is that moving towards reuse requires a totally new re-engineering of the packaging. Uh, the packaging format today is nowhere near reusable. Um, oftentimes it's, it's not even recyclable. Um, and so there's a entire process, often years, uh, to redesign their packaging and to have that packaging be aligned to their branding and their identity. So I think and it's a huge reason why I shifted industries is that there's this amazing opportunity where in wine today, the existing format can be reused. However, the customer experience and the incentive structure to enable that reuse and then the reverse logistics to actually get those bottles cleaned, recirculated, refilled, and reused is the aspect that's missing. And that's still absolutely a challenge, but we have a huge head start in the sense that the existing packaging format can be reused. Um, it's really about creating those incentives so that we can uh, really respect the, the fact that these glass bottles can be reused and honor that and, and enable them to be reused. Right. We're going we're gonna to get into the reuse, reuse and re return and reuse scheme uh, uh, for the second half of this, but I, I do want to at least um, converse around the two other ways in which we can car, uh, glass can reduce its footprint. Of course, we reduce what I just discussed in terms of alternative packaging. We know what the, the issues there that Bruce mentioned. And we also know that other industries, like you said, Andy, are going to uh, uh, a format where glass sometimes is attractive to be able to, to uh, to reuse it rather than, than than putting all the eggs into the alternative packaging, right? So then the second way to reduce, some people would say, and frankly, I'm, I'm a big proponent of this, where I've been uh, saying this is reducing in terms of the actual per bottle uses, meaning going lightweight, right? In favor, uh, instead of the heavyweightness. I, I don't know, I can think of probably a few packages, not too many, where the lightweightness of the laptop is a benefit, of your running shoes is a benefit. And we were convinced that the packaging of wine being heavier, more inconvenient, it's tougher to shove into your wine cellar is a benefit, right? Um, and as opposed to a, a detriment. And so right now the conversations around this loudest voices out there, Jancis and a few other people are calling out producers by name oftentimes, right? And we think of this as a lowest hanging fruit, relatively speaking in terms of reducing the, the amount of glass in the waste stream. Uh, companies in Portugal, uh, Crimson Wine Group, uh, Nicholas Cuyé, uh, uh, my friend, they've reduced their um, you know, emissions by 10, 15% by having a lighter glass as part of their strategy, right? Um, and a few other, uh, other things too that benefits from that. They're able to store more and ship more using the same amount of warehousing and trucking. But then, well, Let's, let's think about this for a second, because if you put all your eggs in that basket, then Andy, uh, tell me about your thoughts on whether that is a, the, the best strategy or what is the limitations of those diminishing returns if you go lightweight? Yeah, so I think lightweight is an excellent strategy and has the ability to reduce the environmental impact um, on the front end of the supply chain for kind of all product formats. And as it pertains to wine, we should really be designing it to be as lightweight as possible while still being durable enough to be reused. So I, I wouldn't advocate for an excessively overly built bottle, but rather one that is kind of hitting that point of being sufficiently durable while not having excessive weight associated with it. And I think that, you know, kind of outside of the context of, of this 
uh, conversation specifically, but there's, you know, new formats coming where it's wine in a can or it's wine in a box. And these are following that lightweight trend. And I think that I just want to put some caution towards that because we, we've seen this case study before where uh, if, if we just look to the beverage industry of, of soda and we look some decades back, you'll see that almost all soda was sold in glass bottles. And in an effort to lightweight those bottles to both reduce the cost of the packaging and potentially to reduce the environmental impact, it shifted into aluminum cans. And aluminum cans became PET plastic. And that PET plastic became lightweighted. And in certain markets, mostly in, in developing markets, there's sometimes even uh, sachets, which are kind of like a, you know, more of a Capri Sun type format, oh, where okay. it, instead of it being in an actual bottle, it's in a film plastic. And while that's well-intentioned to reduce the environmental impact of the packaging, I think it's important to acknowledge that there's a consequence in terms of consumer delight. So what does it feel like when you're drinking out of a PET plastic bottle versus drinking out of a durable glass? And especially with wine, where there's you know, already special formats, right? We drink wine out of, of wine glasses. I think we really need to keep in perspective this notion of consumer delight and how they enjoy using it. Um, and, and the existing format, which is reusable, is really powerful in that regard. So I think we should make wine bottles as light as, as possible while still ensuring that they are sufficiently durable uh, to be able to go through many reuse cycles. Excellent. You know, there, there is a question that we'll come back to a little bit, a little bit about the minimum weights to cope with the reuse. When we get into your, your company, I'm sure you'll answer that. So hang on, uh, Joe, for that. But I'm thinking also, uh, and Bruce, maybe if you want to touch on this, but I want to throw out a figure here where uh, if you reduce uh, companies to studies, I think uh, Nicholas mentioned this uh, at Crimson, they reduced their weight by uh, 20%. I think this is the EPA, actually. Then that reduces about 0.2 pounds of the 1.8 pounds of carbon uh, emissions. And if you reduce by 40%, now you're getting pretty thin there, right? You only reduce the uh, your carbon footprint by about half a pound. So it goes from 1.8 to 1.3 there's a point in which it's it's sticking, right? You can't go lower than that. You still have a carbon footprint that is relatively heavier compared to the other uh, formats. And you really cannot go lighter because then you start running into the integrity of the, of the glass. Um, and, and Bruce, I think that you you had, uh, you had and I had chat, chatted a little bit about this uh, last week. Is there, is there, are, there, are there any other consequences or things you wanna to touch on about making uh, white, about making glass lighter or smaller? Um, yeah, I mean, from, from our perspective, when we, we look at it for uh, reuse, um, that is, there, there is a point of diminishing returns and you have to find a balance between, uh, you know, the product maintaining all of its integrity um, and still being able to uh, reuse uh, the vessel. So, so I think, I don't think any of us, there hasn't been enough experience with wine bottles. This is new. So we've established a standard uh, that we are using and we believe that it is a bottle that will hold up well. Um, but over time, if we find that we can reduce the weight of it and still get the uh, number of reuses of, of the bottle that will make this or reuse viable, economically viable from a practical point of view, then that's something, you know, we have a lot to learn about that. And I think that's, that's something that's going to be uh, fleshed out over time. Seems like we uh, might have lost your audio, Martin. 
Ah, yes. Okay. Because there was a forklift uh, behind me. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, uh, I'm at a working winery here and, and the, the forklift drivers are always smiling because it's uplifting work. So anyway, <laughs> um, you know, the, the, what I was saying was uh, uh, speaking of the things that we need to know, that we need to learn. Right. Well, uh, Karen uh, McNamara, Conscious Container, she was in the previous session. Um, she and I also had uh, a discourse and, and she'd mentioned the fact that there's the possibility of lighter weight actually gumming up because of the fragility, uh, making recycling more difficult. So it doesn't it is, it's not necessarily always clear cut that uh, there's potentially some unintended consequences around trying to go one direction and then you have a potential problem arise elsewhere. So I think collectively, we do want to, um, uh, to recognize and become more educated uh, ourselves and, and, uh, and go on from there. Um, I'd now, next, speaking of recycling, I want to transition to that next, because obviously, the easiest thing that we feel like we can do as a consumer, I know I do this, we have our containers at our house uh, of, of recycling. But in the past, what is this, uh, 20, 30 years or so, we went into the single stream recycling, right? Where everything goes in to one, um, <clears throat> to one container, at least here in California, and I'm sure in, in other parts of uh, the world and, and the, in the country as well. The raw figures suggest that if you are able to capture uh, glass and reuse the, the cullet, that's the, the term for, uh, the cullet is a term for uh, recycled broken or waste glass. That's what they call it. I'll stop. I'm sorry. Um, there's about 16 to 20% reduction of the carbon footprint, right? Versus virgin glass. Um, and there's a lot there. There's 18 pounds, right? In every case that could potentially go in there. And if you're able to use that, that's, you know, that's half of that is wine. Half of that is the glass and the cork. Um, and yet there are problems with that too, right? Uh, Bruce, uh, what did we find out? Uh, I'm sorry. What, uh, this is re what in regards to, to the. Oh, this is in regards to when we discussed the, the 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 basically the broken system. This is not not really the worst worst kept secret out there in terms of the recycling uh, out there and what the, what are the ways in which potentially uh, that could be improved and the incentives around that and the hurdles. Yeah, I I think look, we we know that as a country we have much lower recycling rates than Europe say and many other you know many other parts of the world. Um I I think until we get to a point where glass has a net positive value in in the waste stream like aluminum and cardboard and even plastics do um, we have we have a real fundamental problem with glass. I mean, in that municipalities can't take and recycle it and have a positive value uh, at this point. So that's that's a real problem and a real sticking point. There are some programs um, in Maine, for example. There, you know, they've had a bottle bill for close to forty years. Um, just with a small uh, deposit, depending upon the bottle, it ranges from five cents to fifteen cents. Um, and they've been able to increase their redemption rates from 30% up to 80% plus. So that is something that I think, uh, you know, needs to be looked at as well as are there other ways that we can improve, uh, you know, recycling rates when we're talking about recycling of glass. Are there other ways that we can make that uh, glass wine bottles have more of a positive value from a recycling perspective? The main bill took 78, I think it was, right? The, the bottle bill, right? 
And uh, that's up to 80 or so percent. And I mean, as a society, that's, that's, it took a long time for them to get there, I think, from the, from the sound of it. And also, in, I think in Europe, uh, the, the Comité Européen de Entreprise Vin, it's their uh, wine producer um, conglomerate, they're trying to do something to get up to 90% as a whole. And yet, of course, we're far from, they're far from, I think they're around 74 or 75% collectively in, in the EU. And I think if I'm not mistaken, that out, as a country, we're only in, at around, what is this? Did you say 25, 30% in yes. terms of the whole US? Uh, so, so that's, yeah. that's significant uh, work to be done. Um, Andy, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think it's just so important. And, and Bruce really alluded to it that, like, like what, to understand what the definition of, of recycling is, I think there's like this convoluted understanding. And so there, there's really two definitions to what it means for something to be recyclable. One is if you ask a scientist, is this recyclable? A scientist will almost always say, yes, I can define a scientific process by which I can break this material down into its uh, you know, innate parts and then use that material stream to produce a new product. However, in our vernacular, the term recyclable really refers to the economic definition, which is that can a material stream be sorted and processed such that you then have a single material stream that can be sold in the material sales market and you make more money selling that recycled material stream than it costs you to collect it and to process it. And that is really the issue that we're facing right now. Um, and it's largely because of, of single stream recycling. It's largely because of the cost of virgin materials being very low. Um, but, but that's the equation that, that we need to change for recycling to, to work effectively. So there's a, this is a good time for this question that somebody asked here uh, in terms of the aluminum recyclability and reusability, right? And the question really boils down to the entire life cycle from, from cradle to grave, from virgin material to, to manufacturing, processing, mining, right? Then processing, manufacturing and shipping. Um, I think if I'm not mistaken, what I'm hearing you, both of you say, is that we, just like we can't think of the sustainability of wine starts in the, in the vineyard and stops when the grapes are harvested, right? We have to collectively look at the full life cycle and understand the trade-offs and the, and the um, pros and cons of each step. Uh, we really have to look at all the questions about aluminum, about plastic, about PET, and of course about glass. As, and, and in this case, this person would ask about aluminum. Yeah, the, the, the favorability views that we have have to be weighed, right? And, and re become more transparent about where the, where the, the feasibility, where the uh, carbon footprint emissions are really coming out, where the hotspots are, right? And whether, whether that turns the whole conversation upside down. Um, I, I'm glad you guys are, are saying, are, are just uh, mentioning that in this way. Um, and, you know, I'd say that I think Melissa Saunders did something, a study where aluminum is not that much favorable than glass, if I'm not mistaken. But again, the whole point is that we want to educate ourselves and the wine industry is greatly prepared for that because we have a beautiful vertical structure where we have a, um, the supply chain talks to each other, right? And that's, that's what's awesome. And Andy, so Andy, welcome to the wine trade. I think we're in good shape <laughs> to change the world. You especially, you and Bruce. Yeah, no, um, it's, 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 there's so many interesting aspects of 
the wine industry that I think, as I mentioned before, position it well to really uh, be a trailblazer in this reuse initiative. Um, and then there are also interesting challenges uh, that are presented, but wherever there's challenges, there are opportunities. So it's been really fun to, to come up to speed on all the intricacies of the industry. Yeah. Now let's now that we've, we've tackled uh, reduction, uh, A and B, uh, in terms of reducing weight of glass and alternative, we, now we, and we talked about recycling, little bit of the pros, of course, uh, carbon footprint reduction, but some of the cons around needing infrastructure change. Uh, we didn't touch on too much uh, governmental issues and legislation, but I think that's a part of it there. Um, uh, we, can we can move on from that and come back to the way in which um, partners are needed across, across different sectors. But I want to jump into the last half of our session, which was going to be the, uh, the other way to reduce the carbon footprint for glass, which is the return and reuse system. Uh, and both of you are obviously in that space. And when we think about the future of Wine Americas, the way this is titled, I'd say that given what I've experienced with wine up until for the past 20 years of my life, that glass goes into the recycling plan and I never really think about, never had really thought about where it went or if I could even reuse it. And I'm thinking, gosh, how to get that back to a winery? How to, I mean, how to collect it? What the costs that would be? Where I, that, those questions are, are at the forefront of the, of the conversation that we're having right now. This is still a relatively unexplored uh, uh, a scheme. I know places in France and Loire Valley and, Catal and Catalonia, uh, and then I think uh, in, in, in the UK, there's been some pockets of activity, but not really critical mass. So I want to jump into this, right? The return and the reuse scheme. So uh, Bruce, could I start with you and tell, uh, tell us a little bit more about what you are doing with the Goth Gotham Project, and then we'll move on to, uh, to Andy as well. Sure. Um, thanks, Martin. So you know, this is a, a very uh, logical extension of what we've been doing for 11 years. From day one, we took a reusable vessel. Uh, we figured out all the logistics because it's essentially a keg is, was a beer vessel. That's the way it had been used for the most part up to that point. Um, but we figured out with a wine distributor network how we could do the reverse logistics on the kegs. Um, and that's a very smooth process at this point where we are able to get the empty kegs back to our production facility to be sanitized and refilled. So we already have 11 years of experience with one type of vessel um, with the same distribution system. So, you know, our, our feeling is if we could do it with kegs, there's no reason why we can't do this with glass bottles. Um, one of the main differences that comes in is that uh, with our kegs, we're selling almost exclusively through on-premise accounts, restaurants and wine bars. Um, with, with glass, with reusable glass, the beauty of it is it can be used everywhere. You don't have to have special equipment. You don't have to have a draft system. If there's a cork in it, all you need is a corkscrew. Um, but it's either on-premise where we think there's great application for reusable glass, as well as in the retail sector. Um, retail is where there is a very different piece of the equation that, that we need to look at. And that is, how do you get a consumer who's used to either throw like you said, throwing it in the recycling bin, uh, or maybe worse, just throwing it in the trash, um, to actually 
bring that bottle back to the retailer that they bought it from. So then we can then take, get it back through our distributor and sanitize it and reuse it. So there is, there is an education that has to happen, but it, you know, if we do this with people use water bottles, people have reusable shopping bags. Now, if we've, if we've changed behavior in these areas, there's really no reason why we can't do it, but it is, as you alluded to, it's, it's going to take a big effort on the entire value chain to educate consumers and, and to get back uh, the packaging so that we can reuse it. If we can just reuse a, a glass bottle 10 times, which is our goal, if we can at least do that, uh, we can reduce the carbon footprint from the glass bottle by up to 90%. So that's a huge impact that we can have with this change in behavior. And the other thing is what I love about it is 80% plus of all wine today is still sold in glass bottles. There is, a, there is a long tradition and love on the part of the consumer for that package. So let's not just try to change the package. I think there are multiple solutions. We can use kegs, we can use bag and box, we can use aluminum cans, um, but glass is the number one place where we can have the biggest impact. It's the biggest approachable market that we can have an impact on. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, that's inspiring. You, you took some of my, I think you were reading some of my conclusions. So I'm going to have to reconclude my stuff because that's some uplifting ideas there. That's, that's great. Um, <laughs> Andy, I think I want to tell, no, no, it's fine. You, because <laughs> it, no, no, it's fantastic. Um, uh, that, that means that I was on the right path if I, if, I, if I spoke to you the past few days about this. And Andy, I want you to tell us about the good goods and tell us, yeah, please jump on in. Tell us what you've done. Yeah, so at, at Good Goods, we're focused on activating reuse programs with producers and retailers. And the focus is really on developing reuse programs that are customer centric. And so when a lot of people think about reuse, and I think I, I just saw a, a comment there about like the milkman, there's this kind of nostalgia of like good old times. And there really hasn't been a modernization of what that reuse experience is like. And so we really focus on how can you make this a customer experience that is actually sought after and in making reusable uh, wine and reusable bottles, a sought after product that actually provides a point of differentiation that then amplifies brands in what is you know, a very saturated market. So it really becomes a product attribute um, that's desirable. And so we focus on uh, creating a, a customer experience around reuse, uh, primarily by, by digitizing it and enabling brands to connect directly with uh, consumers. So the way that you would go about returning a, a bottle that you purchased through the Good Goods program is both that bottle has a QR code on it, which is a unique QR code to that bottle, and there's a QR code at the uh, point that you return that bottle. And so QR codes have kind of one positive byproduct of, of maybe the pandemic is I've seen many more QR codes and, and people are becoming much more familiar with utilizing this uh, technology of scanning with their smartphones. Uh, so customers are able to return that bottle. And as part of that return process, they enter their phone number as the unique identifier. And then customers uh, receive a text message acknowledging that they've returned this bottle that they've earned credit for returning that bottle. Uh, so we believe it's very important that there's a proper financial incentive to drive this return behavior. Um, and then it also enables a channel for them to learn more about the product. And what we've seen thus far is that 65% of customers are interested in learning more about the product, which gives brands an opportunity to connect more deeply and directly with their customers. Um, and so we think that by taking this 
customer-centric angle of really making reuse as a product attribute, both desirable for customers, but also desirable for brands because it's differentiating them and enabling them to connect with customers and positive for retailers because it's driving people back to the store to return these bottles. And now they have store credit that they've earned for returning that bottle that they can use towards a future purchase. This is how we can really think about uh, getting a, a reuse model to be widely adopted. I think oftentimes like reuse models are kind of put on the table and all that's brought up is the, these operational challenges. And we're not looking at the actual opportunity that's in front of us to create a customer experience that's really desired and adds value. Okay, so uh, I, I, do, I do feel like, if it's okay with you, I do feel like there is, it's natural to feel a little bit of that healthy skepticism not because we don't want it to work, right? But because it's, it just sounds, like you said, operational challenges as well as the incentives, the opportunity. Uh, tell us about the pilot program you ran to discover what you've found as a, through your research. Yeah, so we really look to test and ensure that this idea that customers want returnable products um, it is something that's in the market today. Um, and we ran a business prior to this that was focused on fresh food and reusable containers. Um, and saw that that was definitely an attribute that the customers really liked. It was really a point of differentiation that they could return the container, uh, feel good about a zero waste experience, um, and really reinforce this idea that ultimately led us to wine, um, where reuse as a product attribute is really desired um, by customers. And so what we saw in, in our testing in New York City um, is that when products were, were sold under the uh, return program, that there was a 71% increase in sales as compared to the previously forecasted value. So demonstrating that when a product is messaged to customers as being returnable and that they will receive uh, credit for returning that product, it increases the sales of that product. And what we saw uh, playing with an incentive amount uh, between one and $2 is that there's 88% of those containers were returned. So while the bottle deposit bills in, in many states are, are well-intentioned, um, you know, a, a nickel or a dime is really kind of a, a value that is not sufficient to drive the desired behavior for, for most customers. Um, oftentimes there's the connotations of uh, low income individuals actually collecting those and, and benefiting from the deposit system. Um, but we wanna focus on how we can get the customer who purchased that product to be incentivized to return it. Um, and so that's been really promising. And we're now uh, moved into a state where we're working with producers as that's our real focus to activate producers, uh, to activate reuse programs at their retailers. Um, and so we'll be launching in the next few weeks, uh, about 20 retailers uh, in the New York region um, as, as part of uh, the first producer relationship that we've worked with, uh, which is a farm in New York State, Wild Ark. Okay, so Christy in New York's gotta, gotta find a retailer that, that can, uh, she can buy a reuse uh, uh, return bottle out there. What, what, what about, yeah, what about the, the, the costs for this? It's where, where are the costs? How, how does that work for costs and for the producer and for the consumer and for the retailer? Yeah, so uh, as it works for the producer, um, we supply bottles uh, to producers that they purchase from us. And what was really important in our learnings there is that it's very important that the bottle indicates to the customer that it can be reused. So there's this kind of confusion of if you have multiple bottles at your home and, you know, you've had a nice party, you've got a few different bottles, which of these is actually eligible to be returned and to redeem credit. And so we have a bottle that clearly indicates that um, and communicates to the customer that this is a bottle that can be reused. 
Um, and so we engage with producers as a bottle supplier um, to supply those bottles that they then fill in. And those products go uh, through the typical distribution channel into retailers. Um, we do not charge retailers to engage with the program. We really think about their part of the ecosystem that enables this by allowing uh, the returns to come back to the retailers. And the benefit that they receive is that one, those customers are coming back to return, but also that they are able to then uh, have credits to use at the retailer. And so part of our platform is the credit management system. Um, I kind of walked through how a, a bottle would be returned, but also on the retailer's point of sale is the retailer app where they can look up if you were to walk into their store, how much credit uh, you as a customer have on your account. So that can be applied to your, your purchase um, that day. So retailers are a good, are, are, are need to be a significant partner uh, on this as well. And their incentive seems to be well, let's talk about that. Uh, Bruce, let's, I know you had some thoughts about making sure or understanding to activate, as, as Andy said, the retailer experience as well. And at some point, I, let's, let's jump into that if you, if you want, Bruce. Any thoughts there that you want to go for? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think we do, need, um, we do need retailers that are fully on board and, and that are willing to, you know, learn with us and to refine, you know, programs as you go, because you have, you have to listen to the feedback from the consumer and the retailers. In wine, we rely so much on the retailers to interact with the consumers. Um, so we need, we need a system that works. We've been uh, testing different incentives um, with our retailers, and, and I think that has to be part of it. Um, but I think we, we do have to remember that you know, why are consumers buying wine, right? The, the wine has to be delicious. The wine has to be a good value. Um, the wine, in this case, what we're talking about is uh, zero waste packaging, a, a wine that you're thinking about the entire life cycle of the product and consumers more and more are showing us that they care about the planet and taking consumer actions. So if we can give them an option that ticks off those three boxes in terms of you know, wine quality, value, and now reusability uh, and lower carbon footprint, I think we've got a really compelling uh, complete package, but we have to be looking at the, the whole mix and making sure that the products uh, register with consumers. So I think we have to be careful if, if, if a product to be reusable is appreciably more expensive, I think there's going to be resistance. So we, we need to we need to make sure we're we're coming up with a uh, a business model that really is a better business model all the way around. Right. So anybody who's watching right now who either is an owner or has friends who are retailers, because um, we're just talking about them for now, I, I would say that it's probably worth bringing up, right, a, a thought to either, you know, think about yourself how to you know, workshop a way in which getting retailers on board, right? Or, or and so forth. And thinking about, you know, envisioning in the future a, a place where you go to the reuse and re return and reuse section, like just like there is a natural wine section or a, a Spanish wine section here or whatever, right? So you've got Gotham Project next to something that the Good Goods is, is producing. And just thinking about sharing that idea. I don't, I don't think, um, I, don't, I don't think a retailer walks in 
not wanting to do right by the environment, recognizing how many bottles go through their their doors. Uh, and if it doesn't cost them much, then how to re-incentivize them, right? So you've got some great ideas that that Bruce and Andy uh, mentioned out there. So I just want to throw that out that, uh, you know, as people who are watching or who watch this recording later, you know, let's let's share this, let's share that story. Let's talk about it, right? And uh, and then also the restaurants because they, they might be even better positioned from a from a functional standpoint. And then somebody brings up somebody actually John brought up the distributor, or how do they fit in this this system too? But let's talk a little bit about that. Let's let's start with the re oh, with the restaurant first. Any uh, thoughts either uh, Bruce or Andy about how to engage them and the sommelier alongside? Yeah, I, I think restaurants are are critical to this process. I mean, that's that's been our core business uh, from the beginning has been the on-premise. Um, and I think there's a huge opportunity here because in the case of kegs, um, you need to invest in a draft system. Typically, you're doing that when you open a new restaurant. It has to be thought out in advance, the plumbing, the, the, the space for it. So that is a limiting factor when we talk about kegs. Um, with glass bottles, they're, they're accessible to all customers with, without an infrastructure investment. Um, and it's also, so we look at it as complementary to kegs. So if someone is doing kegs, which we say is, a, you know, the best way to do wine by the glass, um, typically they still have a buy the bottle list. And if you, if you want to have your buy the bottle list be zero waste, this is the way to do that is reusable glass. Um, and as you alluded to, we're, we're going after both uh, parts of the market on and off premise because there is, we think the ad adoption can be quicker and certainly the return rates should be a lot higher in restaurants because the bottles don't have to leave the premises. They just have to put, we've developed a triple thick cardboard container with flaps. Uh, it's the first time I've seen it. There's no tape involved. It's a reusable container that we expect to get at least 10 uh, reuses out of. If the uh, restaurateur puts that in, in the back room, all we ask is they fill up two of those boxes, 24 bottles. They let us know the next time they place an order, they say, we've got 24 empties to be picked up. We go in, the distributor picks up the empties from the on-premise. So I think, I think the restaurant, uh, wine bars and restaurants can be a great uh, avenue to get some momentum going, get conversations going about return and reuse. Excellent. And then, and then the distributor too, you mentioned that. And the question was here, how do they fit in Andy or, or Bruce, either of you want to jump in? Um, you know, they're, they're integral to it because of the three tier system. I mean, we, we've already started with the distributor. So we're testing this in three States. We're in New York, Massachusetts, and Colorado. Um, our distributors, we, we had to get their buy-in very early on. We've been doing a series because it's been, you know, COVID times. We've been doing a ton of Zoom sales presentations, um, educating the distributor and their entire sales team because we need them to go out and be on the front lines and be the one to explain to the, the restaurants and, and the retail stores why they should be doing this and, and how it works. And then what's your conversation like? Yeah, I really see the on-premise as an opportunity, um, as Bruce mentioned, to get a really high return rate. And once the distributor is engaged, this is an extremely efficient system that I think will lead to cost reduction. So this idea that um, when you reuse a bottle, the cost to get it returned to clean it uh, can be less than it is to procure a new virgin bottle. And that really is a function of how efficient those reverse logistics are. 
and your return rate. So if you're getting a very high return rate, meaning that you're getting many cycles out of each bottle and your reverse logistics are very efficient, this is the beautiful equation where going into a reusable format is actually an opportunity to reduce your costs. Um, and I, I joined some sessions earlier where there are already case studies uh, primarily around breweries where they have reduced their cost of packaging by shifting to a reusable format. So I think the on-premise has a real opportunity to be a driving force in that uh, economic equation. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if we answered this question, what the the um, the grams, the weight of the bottle, at least, uh, Bruce, uh, in terms of how heavy or, how, excuse me, how light it can get before, uh, um, in other words, for, for you to be able to use it. And then I want to make sure that we touch on the aesthetics, Andy, that you mentioned within that, the frosting you talked about, but what is the approximate weight? Is it around 600 grams or so? Yes. Uh, so our bottle is around 600 grams. I can show you. It's yeah. a, it's a bur burgundy shaped bottle that's uh, embossed and debossed with return and reuse so that it's very clearly legible. Um, and we think it's a beautiful bottle and we think it should be a beautiful bottle. It should be something that you know, customers want to have uh, on their table. Um, and it's, it's not just the bottle, you know, we're going with a naked, no capsule, just, just trying to use the minimum amount of packaging possible. We thought a lot about the finish. Um, you know, if you think about it, initially, we thought about Stelvin, but a Stelvin bottle, you've got teeth uh, and they're very fragile. And we felt that we would get far fewer reuses out of a, a Stelvin closure. Um, and even the, uh, the labels, the glue has been a uh, work in progress and something we've been learning a lot about. Um, we, we had started with pressure sensitive labels and more recently uh, we're working now with some water soluble, more traditional glues because the labels actually come off more easily. And that's something important um, if you're gonna reuse the bottle, but it is about 600 grams. Um, and we think you know, that it's a very durable bottle and we'll get good reuse out of it. But as we said from the outset, we don't see this as a fixed uh, point. You know, we're by no means are you saying we know everything about this. On the contrary, we know there's a lot we don't know and we need to learn just like we did with kegs. So over time, if we, if we feel we can do a lighter weight bottle uh, and still get the durability and reuse out of it, still beautiful, you know, we're, we're open to that, but it is very important to have a uniform bottle. Um, if there's, you know, more than a couple of options out there, uh, I think it, it makes it only that much harder uh, to do this. Right. And speaking of aesthetics, you, when you put that up there, Andy, you had some, uh, sort of a poetic romant romantic version of what could happen over time, right? Yeah. So it, it's always one of the pushbacks that when people think about reuse, they think I'm going to get something that looks like it's been used. It's going to be scratched up. It's going to not look um, aesthetically pleasing. And so there, there's this design notion of, uh, that, that we bring into this reuse realm of aging gracefully, of how can we think about designing a bottle that as it ages, it actually increases how elegant or desirable it is. And so, uh, you know, one of the attributes that we've seen is bottles that do have embossing where there's a, a raised portion on the bottle. Um, if those are at the contact points where the bottles actually rub together when they're uh, in transit, it starts to develop a, a frosting-like appearance. And so over time, that embossing becomes more pronounced um, as, as that frosting begins to develop. And so, you know, I'm using this term frosting, which is sometimes sought after as a very desired product attribute. 
Um, you know, what's literally going on is there's some abrasion, but it, it appears as this uh, frosting effect. And so, you know, really thinking about it, I just encourage people to get creative about, you know, we don't need to think about a bottle going through many cycles as only detrimental to its appearance. Um, we really need to think about shifting that paradigm to how can things age gracefully and become more desirable in the eyes of consumers, uh, kind of a, a coolness to it um, as it goes through many cycles. So we're, we're really excited about um, how we can kind of shift that perception um, and, and bring bottles to market that when they age gracefully, they're seen as more desirable. Do you guys, I know that there's a few other uh, hurdles, or at least we did, we only touched lightly on some hurdles regarding the return and reuse things like distance from the washing facility, the wash facility itself, you know, the hygienic storage, um, the distributor, which of course, it's one thing to say, yeah, we know it's important because it is. And the other one to say, well, if we get critical mass to really make a dent into the traditional single use glass or recycling glass, which isn't always recycled, right? Uh, there has to be a lot of a lot of activity across the board, but just a lot of interest from distributors. We mentioned a lot of interest from retailers uh, and then the hurdles around the logistics around it. Um, I do want to, I do want to make sure that the, the, the people who are watching recognize that at least for me, I feel as though there, there, there are sobering hurdles to, to really scale this up, but that scalability is possible. I believe, um, you know, and, and, and you know, the, the, that there are ways to keep the conversation going. There are ways to, what we're talking with, like I said, conscious container, which is developing the, the washing facility uh, in the next a year or two. And they were in the previous session and the incentives to make sure those incentives are fine tuned for each step of, of the supply chain. Um, even the, the, the shipping labels to send them back via UPS and, and FedEx. Um, and I also, I want to use the example of Dan Petrosky, who picked up, he's at Larkmead and Maskin. He picked up a bottle of Turley um, uh, wine. It was super lightweight. And his reaction, in his mind, it, eight years ago would have been like, oh, that's really heavy. That's nice. That's, that's going to be, that's an $85 Duarte's Infandel from, from Contra Costa, wherever, wherever they're at. And now is this reaction of joy from having a really lightweight bottle and that mindset change, right? So my hope is that the mindset change of be, one day my daughter holding up a frosted glass bottle say, hey, Papa, look, this has been, this has been used a bunch of times, right? Like, I'm, what about the stories of the people that drank this? Like, I wonder if you can find out who they were, right? Just wild, crazy things about linking ourselves all together. And uh, I, th I think it's pretty cool. Um, before we start winding this up, um, I wanted to uh, to ask uh, ask both of you or any final thoughts around around this topic, uh, you know, the footprint of glass, the future of glass, and uh, things for us to take home as we wind the session down. Yeah, I should, before we go into conclusions, I, I think you were kind of hinting at it um, that reuse obviously does have additional transportation, and, and it feels important to call out that. I think, I think in the eyes of many people in the public, when they think about like climate change or carbon emissions, we kind of map to this image of uh, exhaust coming out of tailpipes. And as you started with Martin, the manufacturing of materials can be a much greater contributor in terms of environmental footprint. Um, and so I just wanted to you know, share that we work with a, 
uh, third-party logistics uh, partners. So UPS and FedEx are the ones that are servicing uh, the returns from our retailers. And these are trucks that are already on the road. You know, they're likely getting filled at the beginning of the day, doing all of their deliveries, and then their trucks are empty at the end of the day. And so their ability to have things to bring back to the distribution center, you know, is beneficial to their business. Um, and from an environmental impact standpoint, it is really minimal. Um, so I think it's, it's just important to call out that, yes, there are uh, more logistics involved in a reuse program. Um, however, it's important that we're, we're realistic and listening to what the life cycle analyses actually tell us about the sensitivity of, of adding those additional transport miles as compared to the value of reusing a bottle rather than it going through an energy intensive recycling right. process and an energy intensive manufacturing process. Right. You read my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I guess Bruce, Bruce and I have to bring it home. We've blessed you with nothing, huh? <laughs> uh, I, got a, I got one more thing up my sleeve, but Bruce, jump, jump in, please, if you want to. Yeah, no, I, I would just say, you know, the more time I spend uh, with the Return and Reuse program talking to people, I, th I think we have to recognize that as an industry, as a wine industry, we have to do better and we can do better. And you know, these examples, it, it's a vision, you know, I'd like to paint a vision of the future, you know, what's, you know, we ask often, you know, what are we going to see in 2025? Well, if we had more people using uh, wine on tap from reusable stainless steel kegs in their restaurants and wine bars, if we had more uh, restaurants and retailers selling wine in a reusable glass, if the consumer got on board with with the idea that they need to take that empty bottle back to the store when they go to you know buy their new wine exchange some bottles like this is doesn't have to be so far into the distant future this is something that we can accomplish near term and if you think about just that 80 percent plus of wine bottles three billion plus um, if we could just take a dent out of that 10 percent of that in the next three to five years we'd be making a huge impact. Um, so I, I would just say we can do it. I believe we can do it as an industry. Yeah, I think we can. And it, I'm thinking about uh, the, the something I read recently, the furnace of the future. In, in, the, uh, in the EU, there's these manufacturers, glass manufacturers, you may have read this, where they built this large scale hybrid electric furnace that runs on 80% electricity uh, instead of 20% fossil, fossil fuels in Germany, it'll be operational in 2023. I'm thinking if that expands out and if that technology makes it into the US for US manufacturers, imagine putting that production together with a reuse, with a uh, reusable bottle where you reduce the carbon footprint through the uh, fossil fuels in the manufacturing process while coupling that with a robust return and reuse system. That chart I showed you before could just way, could go way down when it comes to, to glass potentially. That's exciting to think. I, I, I wouldn't you guys agree? Absolutely. Yeah, and it's, it's like you said, it's all those things in parallel, um, and and just right. reuse itself is a whole ecosystem approach. Um, and so, you know, Good Goods is really focused on that uh, customer centric experience of it. It would be a real shame to have very efficient uh, logistics and cleaning capabilities and everyone in a reusable bottle but be getting a 30, 40, 50% return rate, right? We really wanna make sure that we can drive the desired behavior to reap the benefits, um, both from an, a customer engagement standpoint, but obviously also the environmental standpoint. Um, and, and like you said about that, that uh, pie chart that you had earlier, I think it is really important that so many brands wanna 
advertise themselves as sustainable and they do so much around their agricultural practices, which I absolutely want to encourage. Um, but I think that we need to shed a little more light into what's really contributing to the environmental footprint. Um, and so it's really exciting. Uh, you've mentioned Conscious Container and being here with Bruce um, to, to discuss the opportunity that Reuse presents. Um, so. Yeah, yeah. If we could all imagine ourselves, you know, being a part of something larger than ourselves, right? Some micro thoughtful changes that then say we gives us permission to sometimes buy in glass, sometimes buy in a can, sometimes buy in reusable. Look for ways to change our commuting practices. Those ideas start to percolate. It's a concept that uh, Richard, I think Richard Halstead from Wine Intelligence mentioned, a concept of mobility. I urge anybody who wants to think about um, the. Um, the, 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 the positive move towards a, a sustainable collective consciousness, not just the producers, not just the retailers, not just distributors, but also consumers making those small changes that, uh, you know, as part of a, a larger problem solving movement in this case, I think that would be fantastic. So I wanna end here by asking you a question. What does, when a happy person looks at a glass, they say that glass is half full. When the depressed person looks at the glass, they say the glass is half empty, right? So the sustainability winery would say that glass is twice as big as necessary, right? Reduce our glass use. <laughs> and should be reused many, many times. And should be reused many, many times. Excellent.